We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hi and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the. Why does that always happen? Why? Hi and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the Sat Radio Network. Uh, thanks for tuning in again this week. Um, we are back as usual every Sunday night, um, two p.m. East Coast. Well, some of us are. Some of us get here a bit late, but that's all right. Um, Hi everyone, Neil here. Who's here? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, yeah, we are going to be discussing stuff that's been going on over the past week. Um, as usual, things just keep chugging along, heading towards that precipice somewhere off in the distance that we can't quite see, but we know it's there somewhere waiting. Um, you know, sometimes I think it's been too long trying to make sense of things. Because you think you see a pattern, right? You think you have a good idea what's going on here. You've got a idea what's going on there. And it makes sense. Until somebody or some group does exactly the opposite of what they had either said they were going to do or they are making the decision to do something that runs contrary to their past actions. Give us an example there. Classic example is what's going on here in uh, the Turkish-Syrian border. Turkey has just signed up to a three-year deal to train up to 5,000 new terrorists, upside, excuse me, moderate free Syrian rebels, whatever, per year to pump into Syria. Now, we didn't, you know, think that Erdogan saw the light of day when he was having his deals with Putin back in December. But we at least entertained the notion that maybe, maybe, maybe Turkey was reconsidering the way it did business and would not, let's say, help certain powers to keep doing what they're doing in the Middle East. They, they might just change tack and do something different. Yeah. Uh, no. No, but that's, I mean, that's that's not really, uh, I suppose that's missing the the nature of the, the kind of situation in the Middle East and the way... Uh, that you know, there's a maybe there's a belief or an assumption that uh, everything that's going wrong in the Middle East is entirely uh, the fault of Western powers like uh, the U.S. or no. the U.K. etc. But obviously, there is a lot of it is to do with internal uh, political dynamics within the Middle East, which you know Turkey is uh, more or less part of, and um, you know Tur- the Turks have their own reasons for. You know, wanting to get rid of Assad as well, or or or, or keep their hand in in terms of the, the direction that uh, Syria goes in, etc. So it's can all get very complicated, and you can't really rely on any one uh, any one strategy, or think that any one strategy will persist for any uh, significant length of time because um, things change quite quickly. And you know, these people, when they're in it for themselves, they're not driven by a, a solid. Uh, 
uh, noble ideology that they'll stick to till their dying day type thing. They'll, yeah. they'll switch they'll switch sides or switch groups depending on what comes into play on any given week yeah. or day, you know? I'm giving up on noble, but I'd like at least consistency, <laughs> for God's sake. Well, thanks. <laughs> Geopolitics is a complicated matter. There are so many parameters, variable actors uh, involved in this or that uh, topic affair that uh, is difficult to maintain a global lasting consistency. Interest change, statesman change, resource changes, objective of this one or that one change. Uh, it's uh, yeah, it, uh, like a quick sense. Yeah. But, but actual reality doesn't change much. Yeah. The, the same patterns say the same. Things really True. move slowly True. on the ground. <laughs> Things may change fast in the headlines, but on the ground, you know what I mean? So what I'm saying is that uh, it's either that the, the the wind has changed direction so fast for these people, or they're they're so incapable of taking a fixed stance because they're so, they're just unsure. Maybe both and the third factor as well in geopolitics, a lot of things happen um, in backstage. Yeah, yeah. And seen behind the scene. So it's difficult because we can can infer from the visible actions and statements what is really game going on behind. And sometimes they're smart. Sometimes. they smoke screens, they diversions, so they will have a, a mouthpiece saying white while they're plotting for black or, okay. or they are third actors or impersonating or relaying something that is the idea of another one. Exactly. Well, I, I allowed for that with the news this week that Greece has um, made a temporary deal with the European Central Bank to basically continue get, stay with the program and to receive another loan for bridging loan for the next four months. I mean, there I can see the buying time that makes sense. Four months, yeah, not too bad. Yeah, that, that's what I see too. Four, four months is not so bad. It's buying time, indeed, because uh, if Syriza and I think that would be the right move decides to uh, to go with another partner, not Europe, maybe. Uh, Russia, we're talking about a national economy, national finance. It's a big boat. You cannot U-turn like that in a, in a few days or a few weeks. Four months is very short, even if they had a contingency plan in their mind to implement, implement it pro properly. Because even if they have the solution signed now, to implement it, to prepare the turn will take time. Otherwise, it can lead some, to some disasters. And another point is that As I said, even if they are the contingent plan really now, they must not separate themselves from public opinion. So they first have to show that they are willing to play ball with Europe authorities to show that, you see, we made a lot of concessions and Europe didn't hear, didn't listen to what we asked for and they forced austerity measures on us. So we had no other choice than accepting this Russian loan. And then they did depict themselves as victims because let's remember that it was not part of Syriza mandates to leave Europe. The mandate given by the people was 
mainly the end of austerity measures. But it's a paradoxical injunction. Obviously, you cannot stay within the Eurozone while ending the austerity measures because EU, that's almost the reason that of uh, the EU is to impose this neoliberal, harsh, prioritizing, unfair policy leading to more and more austerity. I mean austerity. Austerity for normal people, uh, the top 0.1% being the one who benefits from the austerity imposed on the rest of the population. Yeah, two headlines in connection with this. Apparently, in the story in Der Spiegel, apparently there was, the European Central Bank putting out you know, feelers that a Greek exit from the euro, at least, is very likely. That they seem to expect it at this point, or at least they have it. They're, they have accepted it into their realm of possibility, so that the public front of no way, absolutely no way, is Greece not going to pay us every, every single cent? Is the hard line being taken in public? Well, there's realities are creeping in behind the scenes. Uh, second related thing is. Uh, just before the Greek elections, somebody must have been spying on the Syriza boys because they were in Russia on visits. Various different people, even some of the independents who can't have been known that they would end up being in the independent government. Anyway, they were in Russia meeting certain people. And the Financial Times discreetly, you know, in an article about possible trouble here with the Greek exit from Europe vis-a-vis Russian relationships with the EU, lets it be known that the Greek foreign minister is very buddy-buddy with a certain Alexander Dugan. Mm. Some of you may have heard of this guy. Alexander Dugan is basically talked about in hushed tones in the West because he's a dark, dark person. They call him a neo-fascist. He's kind of an unknown, basically an intellect, may or may not be close to the Kremlin, has this whole Eurasian ideology, I suppose, set of ideas about... Russia's future role in the world and people in the West are saying, oh God, Putin is actually carrying out the kind of stuff this guy is saying you know, take over the world via a massive Eurasian empire and so when the Greek the, the soon to be Greek foreign minister is meeting with this guy for lunch or something and the Financial Times just letting us know that we know <laughs> I think they are nervous, there's something going on in the background that they're aware of it yeah, there's a lot of stake for, for Greece, indeed. But at the same time, Greece economy is such in such a, a terrible state that they don't have much to lose anymore. But on the other side, Europe has a lot to lose as well. It can well, lose uh, money, it can lose uh, as well its, uh, its uh, territorial integrity. Because uh, if Greece leaves and it's a success... And others will, yeah. And that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. Greece is not the only country in Europe that is suffering atrociously, atrociously from those uh, so-called austerity measures. Mm-hmm. People are suffering in Italy, in Ireland, in Portugal, in Spain, in France. And one of the, the only reasons why this idea of exiting Europe is not even considered by, uh, by people is because there is this strong belief that leaving Europe equals financial death. But 
nobody left Europe, so nobody knows if this is financial death. And anyway, again, we reach a point where those austerity measures are so harsh that what is true is that if you stay within Europe, you have financial, economic, and social death. Mm-hmm. The situation in Ireland, actually, there was a mass protest uh, going on, I think, or a couple of days ago. Um, they started arresting, rounding up certain agitators of protests against, or people leading protests, specifically against the water tax uh, surcharge, but it's really the anger is with the austerity program, because that's where it comes from. Um, they, they arrested five people. They're, they're in prison. They've been there for two or three days, and they're now on hunger strike. And I don't know where it's going, but uh, there is a very, very good chance that uh, the next government in Ireland or any other country that's, you know, any of these peripheral EU countries will, will go the way of Greece and that they'll have either a brand new party or a party that is voted in on the basis of, you know, saying, drawing the line, saying, that's it, stop. We're not going, we're not going along with this anymore. Yeah, and um, I think the, the problem is systemic. Greece is only one symptom of a deep crisis Europe is experiencing. Look, uh, before this whole Greece drama, you had had uh, elections in several European countries, including France, where the first country, the first party became the anti-European party. So uh, it seems to me that uh, Europe might be might be ripe for explosion. Yeah. Um the only, I mean, the only way to keep going with the project, the the EU project as a whole, is to just beat people harder, squeeze them harder. There's that they've left themselves with it's and it's an all or nothing. Uh, yeah, and if there was no Russia, no co- possible contingency pl- contingency plan, it could work in it. But if it's a big if, huh? it's not done yet. But if Greece exits with the support of Russia and survives the financial and economic attack it will be subjected to, because no doubt international finance will be hard on independent Greece. Uh, to prove the point I was uh, describing before, if you leave your, uh, the Eurozone, you're dead. If they survive, if it works with the support of Russia, so the more they will put pressure on European people, the more those people will want to follow the, the Greek example. Um, and besides financial attack, I mean, how far would the EU be willing to go? It's a year to the day that the new name was put in power in Kiev, more or less, is it 22nd of last February last year? Well, more or less, I mean, it took a few days, but yeah. Uh, that didn't come out of the blue, there was... It's a slightly different situation, of course, because it's not already in Europe, uh, the European Union, but uh, the same pattern of IMF loans, increasing debt, can't pay back the loans. IMF says, well, here, you've got to slash this and this and this. 
Greece, that's basically Greece being attacked over the long term. Oh, not Greece, sorry, Ukraine. And in the meantime, you've got countless U.S. non-governmental organizations working in the background, working on the minds of Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Look west. It's the best. Yeah, the whole thing's such a sham, you know. Um, when they started this, the West started this campaign to spread freedom and democracy, basically, which democracy, let's say, uh, freedom and democracy are synonymous, obviously. Once you've got democracy, you've got freedom. Once you've got Western democracy, you've got freedom, supposedly. But that all began uh, even prior to the fall of the collapse of the Soviet Union, the breakup of uh, former Soviet republics, etc. In, in Eastern Europe, the, the U.S. government had its eye on, uh, you know, pulling those countries uh, away from the Russian sphere of influence. So we're talking here in the late 1980s uh, that they began to develop policies and implement policies to throw money and resources, human resources and other resources at these countries and into these countries to uh, just rabble-rouse and agitate for um, for you know Western-backed uh, governments or Western leaders or Western-looking uh, political parties, etc., to, to take power in these countries. Because obviously, as soon as the Soviet Union or after the Soviet Union fell, um, there were obviously, obviously people in positions of power there who were naturally aligned with, with Russia. So they had a lot of work to do to turn all of that around and convince not only uh, the people of the well, convince the people of the country, but also the the political class to basically totally change or shift their ideological uh, perspective westwards. And and they did so with all of these, uh, well, they did with pseudo kind of, sort of semi-governmental organizations like, or, or fully governmental organizations like USAID and the National Endowment for Democracy. And George Soros was in there working at the beginning with his uh, open Society Foundations and Freedom House and different groups, NGOs they're called, that supposedly have no association with government but are clearly financed directly or indirectly by government, so it's a complete joke to call them non-governmental organizations. But they went into all of these uh, countries um, throughout the 1990s and, and when we talk about, uh, uh, we can talk then about uh, Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, and the, the breakup of that into uh, separate countries, and they did exactly the same thing. <clears throat> same pattern. Essentially fomenting, uh, you know... Well, it, began, it began with IMF loans. Yeah. 1974 or something. Yeah. Well, they always... Yeah, well, yeah. 1974, they started to try and... Financially, to try and put their... You mean Yugoslavia? Specifically? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. But then... Uh, I mean, the, the whole... The whole flavor of these... Uh, Revolutions or color revolutions that have happened in various different places, in like in Serbia and former Yugoslavia, in uh, Georgia, in uh, the Rose Revolution that put that nutbag uh, Sakashvili in. Sakashvili in. He's got a new lease of life. And then he got booted out again. Well, he's been inducted into Ukrainian politics, which is the best (laughs) place for him because it's just basically it's a Western, a complete Western puppet state. But um, 
you know, the flavor of all these color revolutions had the had and has every time they have a flavor of kind of the 1960s flower power revolutions or not revolutions but flower power movements and anti-war movements in the u.s in the 60s you know so it's almost like the the ruling elite in the u.s kind of took an example from those and saw how effective they were of course they in the u.s at the time they were the anti-war movement and peace and love and ban the bomb and flower power were all very much uh, suppressed not only only by the government by the but by the media the media took a very dim view of it in, in the u.s but exactly the same type of uh um, social activism uh, has been exported by the U.S. and gets massively favorable uh, media attention, Western media attention, when it happens in in these other countries. And um, it's basically when you say it, it's when they say it's about spreading democracy to these countries, it's about opening the market up for uh, it's making you know, free market capitalism essentially. They want the country to to open up and and they have no problem throwing millions, tens of millions of dollars. And in the case of Ukraine, over the past 20 years, $5 billion. $1 million. At least $1 million, if not more. And they, they, the reason is, the reason they have no problem doing that is because when they, they open it up for, you know, they, they put in a, a, a client regime, a Western kind of puppet in power who will uh, pass these kind of, not austerity measures necessarily, austerity measures maybe these days, but in the past it was, um, uh, you know, deregulation essentially of, of business and corporations which were very favorable to private industry, selling off state assets to private Western private corporations. They make an awful lot of money from that, but they also make massive amount of money. And I'm, here I'm talking about 10 times or 100 times what they invest in creating all these groups to uh, rally for revolution. They make 10 or 100 times as much back in the sale of arms because one of the first things in all of these Eastern European countries and the former Yugoslavia as well, uh, when they've been uh, revolutionized by the West and a Western client uh, government is put in power, they immediately start selling, NATO starts selling them billions and billions and billions worth of weapons uh, that they don't really need and in fact uh, contribute to uh, instability, essentially, uh, you know, uh, uh, kind of a, you know, because when, when one country starts arming, other countries start to get jittery, and that's especially the case with Russia. So it's uh, this policy they pursued has done exactly the opposite. It's nothing to do with democracy, because the other thing they they do is uh, they tend to the governments that they put in power tend to crack down on uh, freedom of the press. They start to kind of, you know, when they do it very subtly, but they start to censor different organizations. In, in, in Ukraine, for example, the new wonderful democracy-fueled Ukrainian government just recently, or over the course of the past year, let's say, but just recently, I mean, it was announced that they had banned uh, 100, over 100 Russian media outlets in Ukraine. They were all de-accredited, basically. They were no longer allowed to operate in Ukraine. So it's uh, there's lots of misnomers, you know, lots of uh, uh, wrong ideas about these things. Just basically lies that people are taught to, to, to believe about it. It's not about democracy, and it's not about freedom. It's not about uh, Western values, unless you understand what Western values really are. Um, you know, it's uh, they basically. I mean, it's they swing from one to the other. They, they, they use the example of say these kind of semi semi 
authoritarian or semi-totalitarian type governments that were, uh, let's say, the way Russia was ruled in those Soviet republics and allied states, where there wasn't much, let's say, freedom of the press or wasn't much um, much room for other political parties. Um, if the changes. So they go in with a revolution, they spend billions in all of these groups, activist groups over a long period of time. One other thing they do is they um, they all finance this USAID and National Endowment for Democracy. They f- uh, finance exit polls uh, for that wouldn't have happened otherwise, but they get in there and start saying exit polls are just such a wonderful, the, the epitome of, of Western uh, freedom and democracy. You know, you've got to have an exit poll after your elections because obviously core to these these uh, destabilization and overthrow of governments is you have an election, you've got to get rid of the old one. So, but it has to be a free and fair election. You can't just go in and kick out the guy in an armed coup, unless it's Ukraine, uh, and, and just impose your Western-backed puppet. You've got to have a free and fair election. So one of the things they use is uh, they introduce polls, exit polls after elections. But with a twist to it, which is that uh, they make sure, they obviously control, they pay and finance all the all the polling clerks, the pollsters, who go out and get all the, the, the exit poll data. And then they announce, and, they, and I think this was probably the case in 2004 in Ukraine in the Orange Revolution, when Yanukovych actually won, and then they announced uh, USAID and NED and Soros had funded all sorts of, all of, all of these uh, exit polls, and they announced that uh, they announced fraudulent or fake exit poll results. So people, that was the one thing that would get people up in arms, that, uh, see, we told you this guy's, uh, he's rigging the elections. Yanukovych didn't actually win uh, because everybody knows that all you Ukrainians, you wanted, uh, <clears throat> you wanted Yushchenko, the Western choice in 2004. So he, basically, Yanukovych's win in 2004 was overthrown, and that was the color of the Orange Revolution. And Yanukovych came in power, and then they started just fighting with each other, you know. Uh, at the time, they had forced, the West had forced Timoshenko, the gas princess, to not run against uh, uh, Yushchenko so that her followers would give her support and blah, blah, blah. So he would win. But then as soon as within a year or two of um, them being kind of in power together, because she got a, a position, I think she was finance minister or something, uh, they were suddenly fighting at each other's throats, and then she left the government, and the whole thing fell apart. And then, you know, six years, less than six years later, Yanukovych is elected as president of Ukraine in what even the West had to agree was free and fair elections. So in such a short period of time, how if... if if it was such a travesty and obvious fraud in 2004 when Yanukovych won, uh, based on these polling uh, exit polls, how did the how did a majority of people in the country then swing back to Yanukovych in 2010? You know, it's just the whole thing's ridiculous. You know, and I mean, it's, it's just evidence of um, of complete manipulation of the entire electoral, political, uh, and kind of media processes in, in Ukraine for, for such a long time. And what they do is they switch, like I said, they switch from they say the kind of Soviet era type government where you don't have much freedom of the press and you don't have any really many, you have other political parties but they don't they're not they don't have much money or funding or whatever so they don't get very far. So uh, and then they introduce Western 
a Western electoral process, which is based on complete manipulation of the population, to vote for only one person. So the people get exactly the same thing. You know, they try and present it as the Western model is, is such the is the opposite extreme of of, of what the, of the former Soviet or authoritarian type uh, government. But it's exactly the same. Look at America. America people don't have a choice. They get exactly the same. They get a choice between two parties that have reigned supreme forever, and they yeah. and they neither of them. Uh, there's nothing to, to choose between either of them. So, but everybody is. Everybody in America thinks that they have the freedom to to choose because it's freedom and democracy. We can choose whichever government we want. No, you can't. And it's exactly the same as the way it happened in, in the Soviet, uh, in the in the USSR and in you know, the Soviet republics. But at least there, it was a bit more honest in that people understood that that's the way it was. Here, uh, you're being manipulated and lied to into believing that you have a democratic choice when you don't. When you clearly don't. I mean, and that's the way they've done it in Ukraine, and that's the way they've done it in other uh, Eastern European countries, where they basically force the people through mass uh, manipulation of the population, through activism, uh, through throwing billions and or millions and millions of dollars at all of these kind of groups to rally for. I mean, they had, they basically had like one of them actually said, one of these groups said that they 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 modeled themselves on Coca-Cola's marketing department, you know, on, on, they, they got the manual, the Coca-Cola's marketing strategy, and they just used that for their campaign to put their person in power, you know, and um, and people just go along with it, you know. Um, so what, uh, is that any better when you've been manipulated into, into voting for someone uh, as opposed to being told that you have to vote for this person? There's no difference. And in fact, it's actually worse yes. because when you're manipulated into voting for these people, I mean, I, well, I don't know if it's worse, it's a toss-up, but the way that they treat these countries after they've had these color revolutions, the way they impose, they, they sell off all of the state businesses, people, generally speaking, experience a significant drop in their standard of living, in their incomes. Uh, it's it's yeah. worse, you know, and that's what that's why we argue, you know, people call us kind of commie lovers and, you know, that we're, you know, et cetera, all these different silly names and stuff. But when you look at it coldly and cleanly, you see that it is actually worse. What the people in the West get today is worse as a, as a as a model in terms of the electoral process and uh, the democratic process that isn't really a democratic process and what they get as a result of it and, and what it allows people, these vulture capitalists, to do in their countries. Uh, they actually end up probably being worse off, at least a large or a good percentage of them end up being worse off, especially the poorest, because at least in... Uh, kind of socialist or communist countries, most people had a, there was a baseline yeah. where everybody had an, the entitlement to uh, healthcare and uh, education and basically a roof over your, over your head. Um, but that's not true for millions of people in the West who, if you can't make it on your own tough shit, you don't get anything. You die in the street of whatever illness because you can't go to the hospital or you die of hypothermia because you can't afford a house um, and, and you can't get a job, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, there are more major inequalities in those neocon regimes, and um, there's another point. You stress the fact that those countries that fall into a poor West totalitarian regime, pseudo democratic, get worse. This point, and uh, if we look at Iraq, Afghanistan, to name just a, a few, we can see how. The collapse was uh, dramatic, economically, financially, socially. The country just uh, crashed down. 
And uh, the interesting thing is that the major tenet of the all uh, Western policy is we will intervene or we will support this change because now the country is in a bad state. And the objective is to improve it, basically to improve the living conditions of local citizens. Yeah, but more, li- but more, more right, more freedom. But they lie, indeed. And the facts are here to prove that they lie. If you just look at the current living conditions in the country where the U.S. intervened, directly or indirectly, it's obvious. And the sad thing is that, again, we go back to the same realization, it is very sad, but it's engineered, it's social engineering, it is very sad that most people do not see the major discrepancy between the promise we will, or the, the main motiva- uh, main reason, main excuse, we intervene to improve living condition, and the result, a dramatic worsening of living conditions. Yeah, it's horrible the way they, they, they hype it up, you know, and, and what they push for, you know. What they've been pushing for in Ukraine prior to the Maidan, uh, which was a year ago today, and in the months prior to that where you had all of the activism on the streets, and all of them were Western-backed, Western-funded NGOs that went out and, you know, they just throw photocopiers and reams and reams of paper and take uh, at all these people and get all young people out onto the street and they're all handing out flyers and uh, graffitiing kind of... Uh, slogans and logos on walls and they're getting and they're setting up TV stations to give them 24-hour coverage and coverage and just bombard the people with this uh, propaganda to get them all worked up and agitated for yay freedom and democracy let's get out there and overthrow the corrupt elite and it, it obviously took with quite a lot of uh, people particularly in Ukraine and Kiev but um, the funny thing is and, and they talk in all sorts of I mean they really hype the the freedoms uh, aspect of it, where there all of these NGOs, uh, technically their their mission or their remit on their websites is to, you know, lobby for freedom of the press and uh, changing government policy, changing government laws, even to. And these are these are organizations that are funded by the West that are talking about changing legislation in the Ukrainian government. But anyway, it's all in the context of freedoms, freedom of. Uh, information basically that the government has to be more accountable and more transparent because that's what democracy is all about transparent government so the people are informed and the people can take a direct part it's direct participatory uh, democracy essentially you know where, where, where they get to have a say in how the country is, is run that's what they talk about over and over and obviously the media is very important that so the media have to be empowered to get access to that information to then give it to the people and et cetera and every and citizen journalism, all of that. It's all wonderful. It all sounds so great, you know. And this is all coming from the U.S. All of this is written by the U.S., by U.S. corporations and U.S. organizations and the U.S. government fundamentally. And yet, uh, like one of the U.S. Uh, USAID, which is the preeminent U.S. government kind of uh, uh, regime regime changer around the world, like the, the actual means to destabilize countries is uh, overseen by USAID, which is, you know, it is what it sounds like, you know, the U.S. giving aid to other countries in terms of cash and resources, but for a specific objective. And even they said, they acknowledged, USAID acknowledged that the American political party practices would not satisfy the measure of democracy. 
organizational democracy would not be met by either of the two parties in the United States. They said that in 1999. And yet they're lobbying for, you know, they're pushing all these extreme freedoms on other people. And if they, if anybody said, so are you doing this? They'd be like, well, no, but we want it for them, but not for us. So we do as we say, yeah. but yeah. not as we do, basically. But then, and you wonder why, you know, I, I was thinking, you wonder why, obviously we talked about the motivations behind this, which is largely financial and power and control, you know. Uh, I mean, they may now and again, these people who implement these policies may now and again think, and even the ones who are a bit duped by it, you'd think, but they're getting something out of it as well, you know, they're getting a, a large salary, a lot of them, and sometimes they get positions, etc. But you'd wonder now and again, they may think, well, should we really be interfering in this country? I mean, what are we going to, well, we're talking about changing things up here radically in this country, and uh, w- what if we put, uh, what, who comes next? What, what if the, the, put, the people we put in power, or help to put in power as we see it, uh, are, are worse than worse than the ones before? Should we even be doing this? You know, is it not a bit dicey? Is it not a bit of a, of a, a dubious uh, proposition, really, to have this kind of interference in other countries? But then I, I figured it was like, it's more or less like, a bunch of U.S. policemen being told that uh, the franchise owner of a Dunkin' Donut shop was mistreating his employees and noticing that there's a real, you know, enthusiasm there for those among those cops to go into that Dunkin' Donut shop and really shake things up, you know, <laughs> uh, and say, yeah, this guy, you know, if it wasn't a Dunkin' Donut shop, they might have said, well, is he, is he doing anything illegal? I mean, should we really, do we have any right to do this? But as soon as it's Dunkin' Donuts, it's like, yeah, let's get the hell in there. No, kick the door down. <laughs> you know, because it's Dunkin' Donuts, and obviously my analogy here is Dunkin' Donuts is greed, right? It's, uh, uh, you know, once there's an incentive there that overrides any considerations, any moral or uh, critical thinking considerations because it's just, they just see the Dunkin' Donuts and they're like, let's get in there. Mm, yeah, that's a good idea. Freedom and democracy, yeah. And you mentioned an important point. Legal. Is it legal to raid or to uh, to uh, destroy or to mod- modify the, this Dunkin' Donut shop? And one of the made, most fundamental acts in international law is that countries are sovereign. How do you reconcile this most fundamental law with the fact that countries, particularly the particularly the US, decides most of the time unilaterally, without the consent of the international community, the UN, most of the time, sometimes, decides to mess with internal affairs of a foreign country, which is, by definition and legally speaking, sovereign. Well, they they spent decades explaining to us little people that sovereignty no longer exists in this globalized postmodern world. There's no such thing as a nation state. Um, there are, we're all one big global civil society now. We're all the same, you know. Um, we all want the same thing. We're told. And there's no reason why everyone shouldn't be on board. In fact, anyone being sovereign is being out of line, is being a rebel, is being an agitator. 
I think they see countries in this way. About the point about do they ever stop and go, well, if we go and do this, well, what will the consequences be? George Soros recently wrote um, in passing, he was talking about some other people say that there's a risk of us bringing regime change to Russia because what if an even more extremist nationalist mm-hmm. comes into power behind him? I thought about that, but I don't think the risk is so high. I think it's still worth it. It's, and this is Madeleine Albright speaking here. She's asked um, about the sanctions against Iraq that killed a half million children. Is the price, what was the price worth it? And she says, yes, uh, the price was worth it. We have our goal and really you people don't mean anything. And the risks, an all-out war with Russia, it certainly doesn't seem to bother Soros. Yeah, and well, he's a private individual. That's why he can just go back into his bunker. Yeah. Things turn. Or on a spaceship. Yeah. Yeah. And the Madeleine Albright statement, I think it connects to the concept of psychopathy here, clearly. And, uh, values that are ours, like, uh, value of, uh, the life, human children, human chi- children. I guess for, psychopathic individual it uh, it is not relevant or even on the contrary well, i guess some psychopath might have a a kick being part of uh, killings so we sure, cannot them, but i think I, I think it's primarily that the people are functional for them they are themselves a natural resource yeah human beings exactly um so they're not they don't really want you want to slaughter everyone, although that tends to happen more often than not. I don't think if, if that was their primary end, they would have let fly a lot more often than they do. I think both uh, are compatible because uh, in psychology studies about psychopathy, you, there are some depictions of the way psychopaths see other human beings. And is, as you said, basically as items. Yeah, and they don't consider the future. Really. They don't really tend to consider neither. the results of their actions. Yeah. So. And and they see them as objects. And when you see uh, people using objects, sometimes they use objects for their own interest. Sometimes they destroy objects. Nonetheless, the object is considered as an object. Yeah, they just walk away. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's kind of a joke. And uh, there's stuff going on in Ukraine... Uh, Still, that doesn't seem the ceasefire doesn't seem to be holding that well, and the rebels don't. Nobody trusts each other. Basically, uh, the rebels certainly have no reason to trust Kiev and their NATO masters. And um, as a result of that, as a result of that mistrust, that genuine mistrust from the rebels towards Kiev, Kiev then decides that it can't trust the rebels. You know, but that's there has to be a, a an assessment of the. On balance here, who's the aggressor and who's not, and who who, exactly. uh, who needs to be, who needs to make some atonement essentially. But that's not what Kiev or NATO are about. There, so you know, and there's some suggestion that they're heading, they're trying, might want to take uh, Mariupol. Um, that that might be a, a new front. They might just, uh, I mean, they may be taking a wait and see approach, but because I mean, the whole Minsk thing, the recent uh, agreement is is a bit. It's a bit tenuous, you know. It's by the end of the year, some kind of a, some kind of a, an agreement, a hard agreement will be made on, you know, autonomous or a, a status for uh, a 
eastern Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk and, but then where the borders are going to be and, I mean, the whole thing just sounds so implausible because, I mean, part of the, the Yuki's, the Kiev NATO demand was that the control over Ukraine's borders would be restored. And obviously what they're talking about here is the border behind the rebels in Donetsk and Luhansk. But, you know, I mean, that's very, I mean, what the main thing they've been fighting for is closer ties with, uh, or the, the, the freedom to have close ties, business ties, etc., cultural ties with Russia. And that would tend to suggest that they would control the border and that it would not be under the, there would be no, the dictates of Kiev would not be along that border, but rather it would be uh, whatever the people of Luhansk and Donetsk wanted along with the Russians. So that's almost that's almost impossible. That seems to me to be an impossible like, well, stipulation of the agreement, you know, because Kiev is obviously going to want to lock down that border because they're going to be invaded by Russia at any moment. Yeah, it, it, it's absurd <laughs> to imagine it. But I think what was the concession that was given there was that first some kind of referendum, which they've already had actually, but okay, let's do it again in these two reg- these two provinces, and then that would produce legitimate, in quote, government representative of mm. the two regions, mm. then they would settle on the extent to which they're autonomous, in some way federalized from Kiev, mm. and then that therefore means that that border behind them remains the border of Ukraine yeah. and Russia. And, yeah, of course, and, they're going, and, and it's going to be governed by Kiev, from Kiev, from mm-hmm. central authority. Yeah. But that's, that's like having your enemy at your back, basically. They're going to have a bunch of border guards. And, uh, you know... I mean, controlling who goes in and out. You know, I mean, that's a fra- that's a serious, that's a flashpoint right there. I mean, that uh, I can't imagine how they would, unless Kiev suddenly has a complete, the the, the Western puppets in Kiev suddenly have a, a a bunch of lobotomies or something, or you, you know, there's no way they're going to change their attitude. I mean, they all rabidly hate Russia. You know. Yeah, the way I, I interpret this uh, Minsk agreement and meeting is that. A, on a international politics level, there was a the officialization of a major change in uh, European policy, German and, and French policy. Uh, and it might have consequences in the future. And uh, in Minsk, we clearly saw the division between, on one side, US and UK, that are very much pro-war in Ukraine, and we know what, and it's because of Russia, basically. And on the other side, we see Germany and France who see the conflict escalating and who don't want a war in the backyard mm. and economic sanctions that are harming their national economies. So there was this uh, political uh, aspect, and I think there was a more mundane, if we can say, uh, if we can use this word, more mundane uh, consideration that was the Debaltsevo uh, pocket of thousands of Kiev soldiers that were surrounded, that were about to be slaughtered, who were to surrender otherwise. And uh, the Minsk agreement came maybe as an attempt to save the soldiers, but the problem is that Porsche and Co., which was very interesting. It was very interesting to see how Porsche and Co. reacted to this whole Debalsevo business because all along he's been denying the seemingly obvious fact that his troops were surrounded. Figures were about 5,000 troops 
he doesn't see much compared to the U.S. armies, for example. But uh, the Ukrainian army, 30,000 soldiers, we're talking uh, one-sixth, 15 percent. Well, it's up to 8,000, so it could have been almost a quarter, uh, yeah. more than a quarter. Yeah. And this was almost the, a third. They were the, the best uh, that they could muster. And it's an example of the fact that they could only muster 30,000 out of a purported maximum of 6 million milit- of military age and able to join the military. 6 million uh, in Ukraine, they could get 30,000 who are ac- able for active service. Is kind of like not only says a lot about the, the nature of this recent, uh, well, the nature of the rebellion, the nature of the, of the, of the Maidan revolution and how, how many people were actually involved in it. And then the nature of, or the extent to which the Ukrainian people actually support what's going on in Ukraine. It's got nothing to do with most Ukrainian people either. It's, it's, it's a NATO war, basically, mm-hmm. a NATO proxy war. And in that sense, Poroshenko was exposed as just, uh, Willy Wonka, you know, chocolate king. That's all he is. He's no clue. I mean, he's been in Ukrainian politics before and he's completely corrupt. He was, he was actually, <clears throat> in 2004, he was, he was in government with Yushchenko, but then he was kicked. He was, he resigned. Because he's accused of uh, corruption. I mean, if you look back at the history of Ukraine, every single person, they talk about Yanukovych, who was kicked out last year, but every single one of them, the gas princess, Timoshenko was complete, just corrupt to the core. So was Mr. Orange Revolution, Yanukovych, and all of the other names. Every one of them are just as bad and worse than each other, trying to outdo each other (laughs) in terms of corruption. But they hold up one guy, Yanukovych, and the Ukrainian people knew that. And that's why I don't believe anything about the whole Maidan thing. The, anybody who was on the Maidan uh, prior to the violent episode were there protesting on the streets for radical change of everybody, not just Yanukovych, everybody, all of them. They didn't want anybody in power. I don't know who they were going to choose from or what they were going to do, but because they don't, that's, that's who they've got to choo- well, pick from. But. That's why there were only 30% turnout. In their elections this year, right? Exactly. So the whole thing's just—it's uh, a big one, big giant propaganda lie, basically. And then um, <sighs> to give an idea of the well, level of motivation or demotivation in the Ukrainian army, apparently during the debate, civil debacle, there were anti-surrendering troops, Ukrainian troops, yeah. that were shooting. At the Ukraine, at their mm-hmm. partners. Yeah. I think the, Ukra- the whole Ukraine story, is, when it comes out, is going to be so sordid. Uh, the reason why they were trapped in the beginning was because, yes, they had barrier troops behind them to shoot anyone trying to dislead. Because yeah. they were to- they were meant to go in. And that was or... how, I think, the rebels were able to take a town behind them to the northwest and therefore create this cauldron. And it's, it's been resolved this week by... The, the Donbass militia says there are between three, three and three and a half thousand dead yeah. Ukrainian soldiers. They killed them, basically. Yeah. Well, but, but well, that's, no, that's, that's, that's why you had Merkel and Hollande running around, because they wanted to say they knew this was happening. They, had, they have uh, you know, at least some objective uh, uh, analysts, etc., and people on the ground who were telling them, this is a bad situation, we need to stop, or this is really going to turn into a route for, for us in terms of what we're trying to do. And um, the, the, the rebels in eastern Ukraine could, if, if they really win, you know, win this victory uh, in a really outright kind of fashion, and there isn't some kind of a, a, a peace deal type thing where everybody is seen to kind of like back down and say we don't want to go on any further, 
uh, then they're going to run rampant. They don't, know, they don't know where it'll stop, you know. So, um, and Poroshenko had no clue about that, apparently. Poroshenko was there just, you know, playing the hard-ass, hard-line kind of uh, deal-maker at, at Minsk and stuff. And um, I think somebody had to go up to him and tell him, listen, yeah, do you understand what's going on here? And he's like, no, what do you mean? And so what are you even here for, you big chocolate? He's just there as a puppet puppet head, you know, uh, just to make it appear like there's some actual Ukrainian representation as if they have some legitimate government, as if it isn't a completely, fundamentally failed state beyond a failed state in the sense that it's a client puppet state that has no national sovereignty anymore. The only thing that's legitimate in Ukraine is the Ukrainian people. There are no, There is no leadership. There is no sovereign leadership in Ukraine. It's absolutely pathetic. I mean, people people in Ukraine should be extremely, just so supremely ashamed of their leaders. I mean, they should have another revolution. Um, you know, kick out NATO and Off everybody. Of Off of their heads, yeah. <clears throat> so, if that's what they said. But it's... Uh, Poroshenko, in a sense, killed the 3,000 or 4,000 of his own soldiers <laughs> by denying all along that they were surrounded mm. by... Not accepted to surrender. You don't accept to surrender if you don't uh, recognize that you sur- surrendered, and all that for probably purely political motivations. Because in his uh, government, there are some very pro-war individuals, and uh, recognizing a defeat, at least a partial defeat, was uh, not accepted. Right. So, so the whole point of the Minsk thing then was not about peace. You know, and I think the rebels no. are understand that it's not really a genuine uh, ceasefire and an agreement and a peace deal. It was simply to stop them from achieving uh, this clear-cut victory that would have gone against NATO and the West and the U.S. and Kiev. Uh, and therefore, they should have no confidence in the terms of the deal type thing. You know, it was just a stopgap. It was to, to pause the whole thing so we can... Right time. Buy some time, basically, and, and think well, about what we can do. After Minsk won, Poroshenko went on the dumbass, went on TV and said, we've used this ceasefire to rearm yeah, the exactly. load. So yeah. why, 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 would anybody, why would anybody <laughs> why would you trust, trust him? him? Yeah. Uh, so, and imagine the impact. At least 10% of the Ukrainian army was destroyed in the Balseo because Poroshenko lied and was in denial all along the political process, although authorities gave him the opportunity, they handed him Merkel and Holland, the opportunity to stop the bloodbath. Yeah. And imagine the, imagine the rest of the troops, the, the mental state, after this betrayal by their own leader, after this major loss, this major defeat, it's, uh, I think can, from this point it can only go worse. Mm. So... Poroshenko was at the Maidan one-year anniversary ceremony. Uh, apparently, the big crowd. So, I mean, whoever is in Kiev still believes. There's still a, quite a lot of believers waving EU flags, mm. American flags. <laughs> and he got up there to let them know that Ukrainian SBU, the Secret Services... Uh, told him that they had recorded conversations between Yanukovych and Russian state security officials preparing for the shooting together in advance. He's talking about the snipers. 
at my dam a year ago. He's a lion sack of beep. <clears throat> Apparently, he got the right response. The crowd was rah. Glory, uh, glory to Ukraine. Yeah, where is Death to Moscow. Which NGO organized <laughs> that rent-a-crowd? You know what I mean? I mean, it's ridiculous. The contention that the Russians or Yanukovych had anything any anything to gain from shooting all those people, they had everything to lose from shooting all those people. I mean, to believe that, you would have to assume that they're completely, uh, you know, just brain-dead in terms of their... Their their strategy or their their ability for to foresee consequences of actions because obviously what what was going to happen by shooting eighty protesters was that you were going to incite the rebellion even more and force Yanukovych to flee. How how smart do you have to be to figure that out? If I shoot all of these people in this current in this climate, that with the full backing of the West that is pushing this this quote unquote revolution, uh, that and it's all against me. And I've already been forced to, you know, back way, way down and sign this agreement a few days previously. How smart do you have to be to realize that, that would be the end of me completely? I would have to leave the country. I would have to flee if I was if that happened. So that's the last thing he would have done unless he wanted to literally or, you know, figuratively shoot himself in the foot or end the whole thing for him. Uh, but he's been accused of doing that when it's clear that uh, you have to always go back to who benefits and who benefited was... Uh, the right sector, the neo-Nazi, the, the violent uh, element within that came from who knows where, that within this Maidan thing that had been continuing on for the, had been carrying it on for the past, for the week, uh, the, the few weeks previous to these shootings, when it got extremely violent, when they brought out the guns and uh, the petrol bombs en masse. Uh, those are the people who are going to benefit from 80 of their number being shot by police. And they benefited because Yunkovitz had to flee. The agreement that he had signed, which basically met all of the all of the demands of the genuine protesters, was scrapped, and it was turned into a violent coup d'état where he was forced to flee. He was on pain of death, and then uh, an entire government resigned, and the prime minister that was selected by Newland and Payat, the ambassador in Ukraine, a few weeks previously on their telephone call, was immediately made prime minister. And all of the people that they wanted in power got into power. Uh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's just such a counterintuitive suggestion. But then you expect that from such an idiot like him. He's just a puppet. You know, he's a he's a blethering idiot. Yeah. Uh, and of course, there's evidence, uh, actual video evidence of those protesters. I don't know how many people have watched <clears throat> the videos of that day of, of several of the protesters actually being shot. Uh, they're all facing up um, a street that leads up to the central bank and the, uh, the, the parliament in Kiev and they're trying to advance against police lines and they have the police have are, are behind a kind of barricade about 100 yards ahead of them and these, this group of protesters in their right sector basically uh, have their shields and they're hiding behind some trees just off the side of the road facing the um, the police up ahead of them and it's very clear that one of them, because you see a bullet hitting the tree, one of them is shot from behind. And directly behind them is Maidan Square, which has been the seat of the revolution and completely by the right sector and all of these violent groups for, for weeks at this point. And all of the buildings are held by them. And the building 
directly behind them, but 50 yards directly behind them, is the Ukraine Hotel, which is being used as a triage center for anybody who got injured. So it's completely under their control as well. And yet, and then with other reports from uh, of other people who were shot that day that aren't on video, uh, and evidence from the bullet holes that they were all shot from the side of the protesters. All the bullets came from either from behind them or from the side of them, which was all uh, protester-held territory. So there was a fifth column in there. There was a, you know, um, an element in there that was uh, amongst the protesters that was tasked with shooting the protesters, creating that kind of bloodshed to justify a violent coup, which is what the U.S. does. You know, that's what the U.S. has done for decades. So it's not surprising that that happened. But to hear Willy Wonka come out and say it was the Russians is just laughable, you know. Stick, uh, to, stick to the chocolate. It's funny, you know, something similar happened in Moscow in 93. Uh, there was a protest against Yeltsin, uh, his government, and people were being shot, and they didn't know where. Was, a lot of journalists were hit as well. Mm. To this day, it's a mystery as to who did it, but... We can make an educated guess. Um, secret teams. They tend to do that. They turn up in these opportune moments. It happened in Alexandria and Cairo mm. in Egypt in 2011. It also happened in Sarajevo Caught in, in Venezuela. 94. Venezuela in 2002. Mm. Uh, the Sarajevo one was notorious because people were... It, I guess we were all... There, there was less of a... Maybe internet awareness, at least, mm. among some alternative media people at the time. Mm. It took years to realize that uh, the shooters were not Serb snipers. But everyone remembers it as Serb snipers. Of course, they were demonized for other atrocities as well. Like there was a notorious um, bombing. It was reported as a car bombing in Sarajevo that really ignited the, the Bosnian War in 1995. Um, years later, it came out that someone in maybe the U.S. State Department was aware that actually there were plastic explosives left in place and time to go off with the protests in Sarajevo right at the height of tensions to really get the conflict going. That's, that's Planted by Muslim terrorists who were brought in from Afghanistan, Saudi mm. Arabia. Mm. It's a tactic that's as old as U.S., you know, well, it's 20th century, all of 20th century U.S. foreign policy. I mean, there's... It's on record that uh, in Vietnam, you know, after the Vietnam War, when the two Diem uh, brothers were uh, going out, one of them was going to uh, become the, the president. Um, and the U.S. didn't want that to happen, didn't like him because he was a bit nationalistic kind of in his orientation. And the, the CIA were obviously all over the place after the, as part of the Vietnam War. But they... Uh, they planted plenty, lots of bombs using plastic explosives. Uh, there's one account from one guy who actually admits, as a former CIA agent, that he actually planted a bomb, uh, a pl- plastic explosive, amongst uh, a group of pro- a group of um, demonstrators who were out demonstrating or, or a rally in support of of DM. And uh, that's what they do. They just blow things up, you know, and then create chaos and. Uh, Blame you know, someone. I mean, blame. Well, they blame. Uh, in that case, they were blaming a, a faction that was, you know, against DM and wanted him gone and stuff. And and then, you know, they just in, in Vietnam was just horrible. They manipulated the entire situation against Kennedy's wishes. But by this stage, Kennedy was dead, obviously. But um, 
killed by the same people more or less. Um, and go in and kill kill them then have had them executed by this gang that they uh, just a, a pseudo gang you know a a, a bunch of uh, kind of terrorists essentially you know um, it's the same just different names the same tactic over and over again you know where they shunt in a bunch of right wing right sector fundy Muslims whatever you want to call them to shake things up and blow things up and kill whoever they want to kill um, and and, and basically destabilize the country. If they can't destabilize it politically, then they'll destabilize it violently in, in the sense of physically by igniting some kind of a violent uh, confrontation and that can spill over into a small war if necessary or they can stop it short if it doesn't really achieve their ends. But if, if, they're, if the opposition is uh, too strong and it's to some extent well organized and um, aware of them, they'll, they'll let a civil war brew yeah. you know, for as long as it's necessary. That's what's happening in Korea. Well, they might just um, really detonate Ukraine now. Yeah. Um, I think we got a clue today. The bomb went off at a pro-peace protest rally or whatever in Kharkov, yeah. which is Ukraine's second largest, killing at least two protesters. Or no one protesting anything. I think it was... I think they were mainly Ukrainian, you know. Yeah, they're marching. There were people from Kharkiv who were marching for peace. For peace. For, right, and yeah. no more, no more war. Stop the war. And who wants to? Who, who wants, wants to keep to, it going? Yeah, exactly. Who wants to keep it going? Who is most benefit from keeping it going? You know, mm-hmm. in, in the absence of being able to launch another, a third wave atta- assault mm-hmm. against uh, the Donbas and the Russian militia. Mm-hmm. This is what they'll do. They will just start blowing their own people up all over the place. Mm-hmm. And maybe then we'll get enough support behind us and get a million troops. Yeah, but they'd have to really, <laughs> maybe, really work at it, you know? Maybe not. But, um, and ISIS, on the other hand, is still on the go. You know, ISIS last week, supposedly, most of a week ago or so, they supposedly killed uh, 20 Christians. We talked about this last week, so it was maybe a little more than a week ago, but they, on, on a beach supposedly in Libya. Uh, but nobody knows exactly where it is. <clears throat> And there's, if you look for some images from that video, I mean, there's no really horrific images or anything like that from it, but there's images of these guys in orange jumpsuits being walked, marched along a beach uh, and then being, you know, kneeling down on the beach and they're supposedly beheaded, etc. But there's, in one of those images that's a still from the video, the guys in the orange jumpsuits are being marched along and the ISIS boogeymen are in their traditional ninja gear, you know. And but if you look at that image, it's still in the video. About three or four of them in line. It's looking down the line. About three or four of the ISIS guys are at least seven feet tall. How, how do you know? Huh? How do you know? Because they've they've got a guy in an orange jumpsuit beside them. Yeah. And their head and shoulders above him. Right. And he, if he, I mean, there's no, he doesn't look like a, he's not a midget or anything, or that's not the right word. He's not a vertically challenged person. He, he's, he's a. Uh, a normal-looking guy in an orange, orange jumpsuit, but the guy and the guy behind him and two guys behind him are also, you know. So even the media, the mainstream media, is now looking at that and saying that there's this is. I mean, they're they're agreeing with what some people have said. Maybe some people have gone too far and said the whole things have been staged. Where ISIS have, have been killing these people that it's all been staged, starting with the Western hostages last year, etc. Uh, some of them are saying that it's complete completely staged, but the Western media is actually agreeing that this is evidence. They're saying uh, there's no suggestion that these people weren't actually killed, but there is some, uh, this is maybe evidence that the video was... ISIS, has, ISIS is trying to 
be tricksy with us. Well, ISIS is doing something weird with her videos where they're mm. pasting in people or they're taking... Worst the movie ever! It was the worst movie ever. And, you know, so it's interesting that... I can't remember which... Uh, it's probably in a few uh, Western media outlets, but they actually agreed that it's evidence or it's suggestive of the video not being a genuine video, that ISIS in some way manipulated the video evidence for some unknown reason. But So hi, let's just go with the basics here. This is an attack in Libya where 20 Egyptian cops, Christians, yeah. are beheaded. Yeah. And the immediate re- reaction to that was for Egyptian and Libyan Air Force to blow the hell out of wherever it's supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Right. Because the headline I saw was that somebody in the British Foreign Office was pleased to see that Egypt is now on board with us in the war against ISIS. Mm-hmm. Uh, among other things, ISIS plans to invade and occupy Europe through Libya. Okay. Right. They're coming to Rome, yeah. Uh, yes. But Italy shuts down the embassy in Libya. <laughs> but it's, in, it's interesting that just today, or it was a, a report from today or yesterday um, in the Telegraph on Italian Twitter, or not just Italians, but maybe others, but particularly Italian Twitter users in English, uh, kind of lampooning that suggestion where ISIS said, uh, God willing, we will be in Rome by, you know... Next week? By, yeah, whenever. Um, and people are posting pictures on, on Twitter. One of them was... Uh, uh, was the hashtag we are coming to Rome and uh, they put a picture of uh, tailbacks you know on a highway of long tailbacks outside Rome showing uh, saying are you sure <laughs> and then and then someone else said don't try coming over the Alps, Alps on elephants the Romans are wise to that trick by now <laughs> and then someone posted a picture of the Costa Concordia that your guy crashed a couple of years ago off the coast of uh, Italy there uh, sank the Italian captain of a ferry the Costa Concordia sank because he drove it too close to the rocks they put up a picture of that and said his name was uh, Chatino and they said don't let Chatino steer your ships <laughs> he has a tendency to get too close to the ro- to rocks uh, or to islands so and there's a few others you know uh, in that theme just making fun of the idea that they were coming to well there's an extremely Rome. tragic element to this as well it's absurd but I think what's going on here in, one aspect of it is that um, every day almost, really, every week certainly, hundreds of Libyan refugees and people who have come through Libya are drowning, mm-hmm. trying to get to Italy or somewhere else in Europe. Um, in fact, at least, uh, probably something in the realm of tens of thousands a month are fleeing. It's so bad there. And somebody has pasted in or inserted in the suggestion that, oh my God, they're all coming from North Africa, therefore ISIS will no, but ISIS, hide among them as a no, fifth ISIS, column. ISIS has said that themselves, whoever right. ISIS is, you know. Uh, oh, even better. Well, it's, that's, they can speak for them. Uh, Jen, Jen Saki in the State Department speaking on behalf of ISIS said that, um, <laughs> said, I don't know, ISIS, whoever they are, said that they Jen would, they would a psychological warfare, I know, psychological warfare, they would send half a million refugees from North Africa into Europe uh, and hide themselves among them. And this would be psychological warfare. So the ICE are going to round up half a million people and put them on boats over to Europe and say, no, there you go. There's some psychological warfare for you. Mm. It's a small move. Humanize even more the Muslim population with European minds. Yeah, to, and to close European borders and, you know, 
Um, well, the, the and Al Shahab, which the, is another the, kind the of MI6. Is, they're losing control of Olivia. I think what's happening is yeah. the civil war has got to the point where well, that's there's a problem. risk that, let's say, former Green mm-hmm. revolutionary um, Gaddafi, Gaddafi believers would actually take control. Uh, I think that they've been saying, oh, we've no intention of uh, sending ground troops to Libya or anything. Well, of course you don't. You'll just do what you did before. You'll carpet bomb the place. Yeah, or do it in secret. I have a question but, about uh, this Middle East uh, <clears throat> policies and uh, political events. According to, um, what's his name? Uh, Thierry Messon, you know this journalist mm-hmm. who was writing about 9-11 at the time? He's now living in Syria. He became some sort of specialist of uh, politics in Middle East. And according to his analysis, there's been a major change in geopolitics from the U.S., who has now decided, unlike Israel, the U.S. would have decided to fight ISIS, to really fight ISIS, and to do so through a proxy that will be Egypt. Hence the recent deal where Egypt bought some uh, fighters jets, French fighter jets. And uh, uh, does it make sense to you? Well, here's what the I'm puzzled about it. Here, what, what was the question? The, the question is: This analysis from Messon stating that now there is a, a div, division that appeared between the U.S. and Israel. On one side, Israel wants to keep on pushing ISIS. On the other side, the U.S. do does not want to support ISIS anymore. He wants to fight it. And the way they've decided to fight it is to, through proxy, through Egypt, basically, hence the recent purchase of uh, fighter jets and, uh, and recent but that, statements. But that kind of would presume that, presume that um, Israel didn't, wouldn't know that the, that the U.S. was doing that and wouldn't be unhappy about that. I mean, you know he, I mean? Assumes, no, no, he assumes he's uh, in the open, I mean, between the mm. initiates between the U.S. and Israeli representatives, mm. and that there is a growing tension mm. between them. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, there's all sorts of allegations that, uh, I mean, people, I see the question raised a lot as to why ISIS never uh, threatens, let alone attacks Israel. You'd think that a crazy, fundy Muslim group uh, would have Israel as their as their main target historically, but they never say a word about uh, Israel. And Israel is well, they they use ISIS as a for a bit of propaganda on game, but they usually Netanyahu exaggerate. I mean, they try to. <laughs> it seems that Israelis are most preoccupied with Palestinians. You know, Netanyahu has tried to compare ISIS to Hamas in the past yeah. and say basically they're the same, and Hezbollah in in Lebanon that ISIS is the same as Hezbollah, which is just pure nonsense, you know, but I mean, I don't think many people take Netanyahu very seriously anymore and because of the things he has said particularly about uh, in his crass kind of electioneering about trying to bring all the Jews from France back to Israel or Jews from Europe back to Israel because they're under this deadly dire threat is, I mean, he's not a serious person, you know, and he's uh, I don't think I don't, I don't think many Jewish uh, or sorry Israeli leaders have been serious people or taken as serious people. They have never really acted very seriously because their position is fundamentally kind of untenable um, for various reasons. But uh, obviously, there is a big uh, Israeli lobby 
in the US and European countries. So I think that's uh, where is really power lies uh, in terms of uh, keeping other Western European and the US, uh, Western European nations or governments and the US uh, in line or certainly non-critical of or not too critical of Israel because they have a, a very effective lobby. I don't know much about how lobbies works about how lobbies work. Um, it's got to be more than just money, right? Um, but maybe money, money, money is a lot uh, in that respect. But you know, lobby groups and governments—that's what they do. They, they, they lobby politicians to say one thing uh, or don't say another thing and stay on song on this or don't. And obviously, it's there's some influence there because, in many cases, um, you know, different lobby groups have been able to influence government policy that was kind of detrimental to the host, yeah, host government itself. Exactly. So you'd think that, you know, okay, money talks, but you'd think there might be another uh, layer or level of the manipulation going on there. I don't know what it is. Um, you were mentioning Netanyahu's statements about uh, Hezbollah and ISIS being the same, <clears throat> basically. So interestingly, General Wesley Clark, who is retired now, but who was a major military leader in the U.S., stated officially, ISIS got started through funding from our friends and allies to fight to the death against Hezbollah. Mm. So there are two statements here that are quite incompatible. On one side, Netanyahu saying Hezbollah equals ISIS, equals ISIS. On the other side, General Wesley Clark stating ISIS was created by friends and allies to fight Hezbollah. Mm-hmm. It's opposite statements. Mm-hmm. And that's also well, interesting that uh, a quite a leading figure, figure of authority, an American general, leading general, states openly in mainstream media that ISIS was created by our friends and allies. Yeah, Isn't I mean, it the first time it's... Well, uh, of course. I mean, I don't think anybody's in any doubt that ISIS was created by the friends and allies of, of the U.S., uh, because they obviously couldn't exist uh, and do what they've been doing without yeah. a large amount of support, financial uh, and and other support from a nation state. You know, I mean, they don't get to to do what they've done without without having that uh, that backing. It's the same as the Eastern Ukrainian rebels. You know, I mean, there's it's it's oh, uh, it's on almost certain that Russia is supporting them in various different ways and uh, Russia has every right to do so because that's that's the rules of the game that have been established long ago. You know, I mean, the U.S. wouldn't stop for a second <clears throat> or wouldn't hesitate for a second to support, um, you know, a certain groups in like, uh, you know, in, in Mexico or something like that, you know, that uh, that they thought was a threat to to. U.S. national security, you know, I mean, if there was a, a government, a revolutionary government coming to power in, in Mexico uh, that <laughs> was very anti-U.S. and there was an opposition to that, the U.S. wouldn't stop for a second, or wouldn't hesitate yeah. for a second to, to, to help that group. And so uh, I, I find it amazing, yeah, exactly, I find it amazing uh, how they can get away with this demonization of Russia uh, as if it's some kind of like the worst possible sin you could ever, ever commit, you know, in any realm of endeavor, you know, 
to for Russia to be supporting the rebels when the US and European countries have been doing it like dozens, hundreds of times for the past hundred years. It's like everybody does that. What are you talking about? I think there's a, there's an extra dimension to their anti-Russian uh, sentiment. And that I think the psychopathic individual or polarized individual might not be all of them uh, psychopaths. They have much difficulties to digest that finally they have a quite notable opponent uh-huh. and they're not winning all the time and they're not crushing the enemy all the time. And you see it in, it becomes almost a mantra in uh, Jen Psaki mm. press conferences. Whatever question is asked, almost 90% of the questions she has the same answer. It's Putin. It's Putin. Putin it becomes caricature. Yeah. It already, yeah, it already and, is, you know. And the way it says deliver, you can really feel that they are not happy at all with Putin. Because Putin is a, maybe for decades, he's the first leader who successfully opposed this destructive imperial machine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, people, I don't know. Uh, I, think, I think they've removed the word hypocrisy from the dictionary. Uh, I think recent prints have removed the word hypocrisy so that no one understands what it means mm-hmm. anymore. Because that's the only way that people in the West could actually listen to the propaganda and not have a problem with it, you know. Uh, if they didn't know, because it's so bl- such blatant hypocrisy right in your face, people must have forgotten what the word hypocrisy means. Therefore, it must have been removed from the dictionary. That's all I can include. And school books. Uh, Maybe yeah. it happened like 10 years ago in preparation for this, and we just didn't notice. I'm going to go and look at the dictionary now. We have no need for it anymore. Um, yeah, it's incredible. That it's, but Talk- it's, it's, it's very valuable as well. Yeah. I was just going to say about ISIS, and the thing I wanted to say about the ISIS, the Italian... Twitter people making fun of ISIS, that's an appropriate response because it's so farcical, mm. you know. I mean, that's I'm, I'm kind of heartened to see that response from people because it is such a, a charade, such a such overblown theater that I'm glad people can still see that. And, um, I mean, it, it was highlighted by just this past week, CNN ran a story saying that ISIS was trying to recruit uh, Western women uh, to join the jihad by putting pictures of Nutella and kittens on 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 Facebook and social media to show that Western women Western to show Western women that they have a normal lifestyle like like they eat kittens covered in Nutella I don't know they eat Nutella and pet kittens uh, I hope I hope they wouldn't get that impression that they they probably do eat kittens covered in Nutella but. Uh, maybe that's what CNN should have said. So the reasoning, if I understand <laughs> your, what you just said correctly, is that imagine you're a Western w- woman, you go on Facebook, mm. you see this uh, publication from ISIS with kitten and Nutella, and then you think, oh, They're not ISIS so bad. is good, mm. so let me quit my job, my kids, my family, a quick kill pack. Mm. I buy a ninja suit before leaving with a ISIS logo on the, on the hood. Mm. And uh, I travel. Uh, where do you travel? You go Syria? Turkey. Turkey. Yeah, Turkey. Syria. Hotbed. You go for a week in the beach in Syria and Turkey and then you go over to Syria for, for some jihad. That's a, that's a brilliant that? recruitment uh, technique and campaign. Huh? I think a million of uh, Western women will, uh, will join. 
But the strange thing is that there's a story in the news right now, just coming just after that, Nutella and kittens will, you know, are, are being used to attract Western women to ISIS. And there's a story about the three British, um, I suppose, they're, I don't know if they're schoolgirls, but they're young. Yeah, schoolgirls, 15 school girls, yeah, 16. 15, 16. Yeah. Who, uh, but I think this was from, this isn't recently, was it? Oh yeah, it was yeah. who left the UK last Tuesday? So that was they the, disappeared. They don't know where they are. They don't know where they are, but they're saying that they're worried that they may have gone to join the jihadosphere. They may have taken a, a shuttle to the jihadosphere. Um, but that's kind of interesting because that came out, I think, on the same day, or that happened. Joe, I've seen on the same day as CNN talked about kittens and Nutella. Joe, there are dozens, dozens. Every country oh, is yeah. reporting missing teenagers. Oh, yeah. There's a famous, there's one in Austria where like is the government's trying to get these girls back. One of them's now pregnant. I mean, right? But what's CNN? CNN's trying to say that this that's their explanation for it. That's so all they're trying people, to explain. Yeah, but the, kittens the, and Nutella. There is some. Soon. There is some network in nearly every European and American North American country that is getting hundreds or thousands of girls to go to this place. I, I don't understand yet what's going on. I think it's partly to do with... Um, partly to do with... Basically, partly to do with Westerners being losing their minds. I mean, yeah. kids today are just... Yeah. They're born in a world that is so effed up that, mm. you know, they, they have no concept of reality. I think they get there and they realize, holy shit, what did I just do? But it's also partly drugs. They're, they're mm. getting up mixed in with guys who do drugs, mm-hmm. next thing they're with police informants, next thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they do, they do try to sex up this uh, ISIS thing in back in the home countries, in Europe and in North America. Um, yeah, it could be partly sex. I mean, there's stories about needing shipments of condoms, please send them out here to uh, our places in Syria. I mean, mm-hmm. there seem to be wild wild stuff going on out there. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. They, 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 they did their own... Um, they had someone brought in to do... to uh, to help deal with the outbreak of STDs. Mm. Yeah. And they found that 86% of the thousands of soldiers had a stated test on. I think the Saudis sent doctors all had STDs. There's, it's just... It, it, they try, it's hard for us to imagine, but there's a kind of blend of pornography at the level of all the basis things come together. Cutting off heads, sex orgies, drugs. It's, it's, it's a pure expression of materialism. And mm. that attracts people. And certainly, certainly, certainly. But for millennia, you know, when I was hearing the description, it reminded me of for millennia among uh, some armies, particularly mercenary armies, during the Roman Empire, for example, a good way for general or consul to attract to form a massive army was the permission of killing, raping, and looting. Yeah. Killing, eh, the beheading, raping, the STD and uh, what you call pornography and uh, other kind of things, and looting, money. And these are three main factors to attract psychopathic individuals, violence, uh, deviant sex, money. Mm. There's a story well, today about a 19-year-old Jihad is arrested in the UK. Actually, no, he was, the story is now is updated to him being sentenced for plotting to behead another British soldier. Mm. 
19 and MI5 were saying, we don't understand how he was radicalized so fast. He was, he was brought up a Jehovah's Witness mm. of Congolese origin or something, somewhere mm. in London. And then he rejects his religion as a teenager, starts doing drugs, starts stealing people's credit cards to pay for prostitutes. Mm. Six months later, he's a jihadist attending, attending uh, talks by radical clerics. Mm. And then he's caught with a black flag of Islam, mm. a 12-inch blade, and somehow some intelligence saying he was going to go to this base too. Mm. It's just, Yeah, there are people out there. There's that a, nexus of fantasy and reality, yeah. I think, that ha- uh, comes together and makes it all very surreal, you know. But Al-Shahab are, are going to attack the UK as well now after their Westgate shopping mall a couple of years ago in um, in Kenya. Uh, this is Al-Shahab from uh, Somalia. They have called for attacks on London's Oxford Street and the Westfield shopping centres in the UK because Westfield shopping centre that they attacked in Kenya was in Nairobi was um, part of a chain. Part of a western chain, yeah. Uh, so apparently they don't like that shopping center or something. I don't know. Um, but uh, that's, it's, I mean, it's just, you know, it's coming at the right time. You know, ISIS is invading Europe into, you know, from Libya into, into, um, into Italy and Al-Shahab, Al-Kebab are going to, you know, it's a pinch, uh, pinch attack. A, a pincer movement. A pin, yeah, a pincer the movement. south. They're going to come up. Uh, ISIS and the north, the Al Kebab. Al Kebab, but they're going to have a longer sail though, because they have to get all the way to London <laughs> from uh, Somalia. They're coming over the Mexican border as well, <clears throat> and they're coming down they're the north from the Arctic. Apparently, they're turning up in right. Ottawa, disguised as Eskimos. It's um, disguised as penguins. Polar bears. <laughs> <laughs> The whole thing wow, 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 it's very nice. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? Anyway. What was that? Um, it's insane, but it, the, the crazy thing is that the stories, as they get more ludicrous, there, there does seem to be like a, a delayed wave where um, in the background, people are, their brains are so actually turned to mush that they are picking up these things and... Yeah. Yeah, and actually bringing them into reality, mm-hmm. it, the world's going insane. The world's just going insane. I think. The, the, I think there's a spiral, psychologically speaking, in people's mind, where there are two ways basically, and the way they want us to follow is there's such a level of historization that you don't think straight at all, and you believe those utter and ridiculous lies. Which will historize this you even more. They're everywhere. In Ottawa, Italy. We're surrounded basically. We're surrounded by ripping, beheading crazy individuals. Yeah. So you get even you freak out even more, you think even less, and you buy even you swallow even bigger lies that they deliver that make you even more crazy and more freaking out and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. That's the way well, they want us to believe, but it's a double sword. Because on the other side, if you still have a bit of critical thinking, the lies being bigger and bigger, it's easier for the one who still thinks to see that uh, it's pure and simple, baseless. Yeah. But the, the darker reality to it, if there is one, is that there are these people around us all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, 
the United in the U.S. judges let rapists off because, well, the girl kind of deserved it because she was wearing a short dress. There's a mentality and an understanding among civilizing quotes countries that we're surrounded by certain types who have certain needs and okay if, if there's a place for them over there you know they'll go on they'll go over there and do it it there are some of the fighters who went to ukraine went there for this joy of killing people of course safari of course. they call it safari yeah i remember i don't know if you mentioned <clears throat> it in previous shows but there were reports of some advertisements or some deals where actually kind of safari clients could go there there was a price that had to be paid by the tourist for the kind of shooting a civilian $200 it was something like that so yeah it's uh, it's not unlike um, the reports you read about those uh, pedophile organized networks rings where they don't get the kick from uh, sex anymore it's about uh, it's about torture and killing basically it's, uh, we heard about those uh, hunting sessions mm. human hunt you know mm. it's uh, it's the same why is it the same in those two different environments this kind of uh, top western society and uh over there in a Middle East desert, it's because it appeals to the very same psychopathic substratum. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, meanwhile, climate chaos continues. The U.S. is iced over. A large part of the U.S. was a picture, uh, a satellite image where... 90%? Anywhere north of Houston, north and... Anywhere north and east of Houston was, well, without the exception of really southern states, but um, all across the U.S. was just totally covered in ice, you know, uh, at a certain point in time, uh, ice or snow. Um, and the CIA has an explanation for why it's happening. Yeah. What do I mean? Putin. No. Putin did it. Putin did it. That's what they're saying. Seriously, people. Can Russia control the weather? Climate researchers says CIA fears hostile nations are triggering, triggering floods and droughts. Yep. Oh, any comment? comment? <laughs> um, At ice and snow, I, it was very cold. Yep. It went to oh, yeah. negative... Record uh, temperatures again. Negative 9, negative 15, negative yeah. 20. And, and people should take note that the, re- the record... Uh, temp- the temperatures that are being broken, uh, record temperatures that are that are occurring, record lows uh, that are being broken. That's a lot of them at this point, given the past several winters. You're breaking records from last year or the year before in some places. You yeah. know, where where the the hundred or two hundred year old record from that was broken last year has now been broken again yeah. this year. Um, That's an important point here. Yeah, it's getting worse, basically. Yeah, it shows that it's not... Uh, usually, they try to depict, I mean, mainstream media depict chaotic mm-hmm. patterns. So it's just a spike. Mm-hmm. You had a spike down, temperature-wise, but tomorrow you're going to have a spike up. But when you start to break low temperature records again and again, years mm-hmm. after years, it may suggest more than a spike. It mm-hmm. may suggest a trend. Yeah, absolutely. And there's... Um, UK has been getting a pretty horrible uh, 
winter recently. It seems to coincide a lot where the, you know, not just the east coast of the U.S., but the Midwest as well, but uh, definitely the east coast of the U.S., when it's getting cold, cold temperatures, it seems to really uh, hit the U.K. And the U.K. stands out because it doesn't usually get quite uh, so such severe weather in, in wintertime, you know, okay, I mean, Scandinavia, etc., is snowy and stuff, but it's not. It usually don't get that much snow, and uh, but it's, it's snow associated with uh, or, or cold weather and snowy weather, but also with storms. And this has been the same case for the past few years, where they've had repeated uh, very strong winds and high tides, lashing lashing the coastlines and flooding. Uh, from I think last year and the year before, they had flooding, and they're worried about it again because there's a there's a major storm hitting there kind of right now, you know. Which is very unusual because um, you lived in a uh, in Ireland, so you know that better than me. Mm-hmm. But the typical winter in Ireland is you have depressions over Iceland or west of Ireland that brings wind, eastward winds mm-hmm. that is moist, but that comes from the Atlantic Ocean that is not so cold. Mm-hmm. That's why the typical day in a winter in Ireland is rainy, cloudy, and windy, mm-hmm. and not so cold. No. So having this conjunction of wind, cold temperature, and snow, mm-hmm. it is very unusual. It suggests change in the weather patterns that are quite fundamental. It's mm-hmm. a different system. Yeah. Um, yeah. What's the, the accumulated snowfall in in Boston? Is something like no, it's 11 feet. It's ridiculous. Last month. Point. People are jumping out their windows. Yeah. Not... They're not killing themselves, but they're jumping into like these huge snowdrifts. The numbers mm-hmm. will go to eleven. You know, the yesterday in Lyon, France. Lyon is not in the mountains; it's in a Rhone Valley. It's uh, not very north of France. It's uh, close to uh, not cr- not very far away from the Mediterranean Sea, about three hundred kilometers. They had a snowfall rate of five centimeters. That is two inches. Per hour. Per hour, yeah. 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 For, for hour and hour and hour. And there was highways were blocked, uh, all what we see in the US. Yeah. And there's a picture today of, uh, we saw today of um, the Hudson River around uh, Manhattan being not completely iced over, but full of kind of free floating ice, basically. And it really reminded me of that uh, image of um, from the day after tomorrow, you know. The image from the day after tomorrow was a bit more dramatic. It had like snow up at the level of the kind of bottom of the skyscrapers, but it's kind of getting there, you know. It's almost like a first, uh, a first, uh, first step in that direction, you know. Niagara Falls, de- definitive step in that direction. Niagara Falls, Niagara Falls. Yeah, it's been totally frozen for again. Yeah, a number of years. Yeah, so it's all happening. The Middle East might finally get some peace when the ice age comes, because there's been a second. Massive blanketing of snow yeah. mm-hmm. in like a month. 25 centimeters? Yeah, I don't know. That's, but that's, a, that's a Mediterranean thing that's really, really strange. It's very strange and it's been happening over the past few years consistently, repeatedly uh, in wintertime where, but it's, it's particularly bad this year and so it's, 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 it's getting worse effectively. But the last place you'd expect to see snow uh, historically, traditionally, based on our normal climate uh, is the far end of the Mediterranean. Cyprus, uh, you know, Cyprus, for example, had snow the other day, uh, and Turkey as well, but like not, not necessarily northern Turkey, the, the mountains in Turkey, but Istanbul, right on the, 
on the on the Straits of Constantinople on the, yeah. more or less the Black Sea. Uh, it it was having massive amounts of snow, but a lot of places in Turkey having snow, a lot of places in Greece having snow. This is all these are all Mediterranean climates that don't, and then into obviously just past Turkey and south of Turkey and on past Cyprus, you've got Israel and uh, Palestine and you know Lebanon and and. There was Lebanon had a lot of snow in, in the Middle yeah. East, that area of the Middle Lebanon, East. Had snow. Damascus got Syria. Yeah. Damascus had nearly a foot of snow. Right. In the that's but that's ridiculous. So yeah. that, that's absolutely ridiculous. And it's all the more ridiculous when we understand why Mediterranean weather is so typical and so unlike to get snow. Because the Mediterranean Sea is a rather warm sea. The average temperature of the Mediterranean Sea in winter the southern part close to Egypt, Lebanon, and Israel is about uh, 15 degrees Celsius. That's 15 degrees above freezing point. That is the max, uh, maximum temperature where you get snow. Okay? So it means you have to, to get very cold air mass moving from where? From the Arctic which is very far away. Here we're talking about uh, 30 degrees north latitude. Mm-hmm. So it means you probably have a very disrupted jet stream, very meandering with a, that makes, makes a huge valley that goes down very much down to uh, above Africa, maybe Saudi Arabia, that sucks down this, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've like been that. training a lot. That sucks down <laughs> this massive quantity of Arctic air, literally, mm-hmm. air coming from the Arctic, from the pole, and that temperature, this cold, and to, uh, to such, uh, snowfalls. It's very, very Meanwhile, give, Moscow has its warmest <clears throat> winter. Yeah, because this years. meandering mm-hmm. can go one way, but the other way. Yeah. That's the definition of meandering. You can turn right, you can turn left. And just to give you an example to how, Unusual this weather is. I spent 11 years in Marseille on the northern coast of the Mediterranean Sea. That is colder, of course. I think we experienced once temperature that were below zero. We experienced snow once in 11 years. Mm. And we're talking about the north coast here. Yeah, it happens all the time now. Yeah. Well, I think we may have found the... um Nemesis, Pierre. Did you see this story about the close pass? No. A group, of so. astro- a group of astronomers from the U.S., Europe, Chile, and South Africa have determined that 70,000 years ago, a recently discovered dim star is likely to have passed through the solar system's distant cloud of comets, the Oort cloud. No other star is known to have ever approached our solar system this close, five times closer than the current closest star, Proxima Centauri. So five times closer than Proxima Centauri, it gives a... 0.8 light years. Exactly. I was going to say one. Yeah. Is that that right? To the theory of the model? No. No. What's the model say? Roughly Pluto, which is uh, 90 astronomical units. That's far, far shorter. Yes. So this could be something else. Yeah. Or our model might be wrong. Or the model's wrong, because it seems that they began with the observation that something happened. 70,000 years ago, and then worked their way out from that. Yeah, and the, the, the distances... Don't no, fit sorry, excuse me, a recently discovered dim star. Okay, so they made an observation of a star 
and calculated that it may have come back close. The distances don't fit our model, A, and B, the timing doesn't fit our model either because the, the frequency of this hypothesized uh, twin sun uh, is much, uh, much higher than that. It's about, uh, uh, let me remember, it's a million of years. 26. Exactly. Uh, or 27. Um, yeah, 26.9. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. 26.9 million years with a passage that happened almost 26 million years ago. Not seven, let's say 700,000 uh, years no, ago. 70,000 years ago. 70. Uh, that doesn't fit our model. It doesn't mean that it's not valid eh? but because you, our model is only an hypothesis. But their calculation would have brought it within the Earth cloud. I burst through bowling ball effect. Maybe other, or, maybe or, other objects besides it. a binary but, twin would do that. That's possible. There might be several uh, death, uh, dead stars. <laughs> this being said, <laughs> the, the Earth cloud is only an hypothesis as well. Huh? Nobody proved yeah, the existence of true. the Earth cloud. So here we're piling up assumptions, two more assumptions, and uh, it would be interesting to... Um, to know how they they fund those data. All right. Well, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, thanks for for listening. Thanks to our chatters, and um, we'll be back next. In week. case I don't see mm-hmm. you. Good afternoon. Good evening, and good night. Exactly. In case we don't see you. But we won't see you actually. But. Uh, You'll hear us next week uh, with another show. So until then, have a good one. See you next week. Bye-bye. Goodbye.